Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Today, a tapestry of stories about terrible times. A short story collection that revolves around the Holocaust is a pretty tough sell. Make it colorful or optimistic, and it's pure fairy tale. Dwell on the ugliness, the death and the depravity, and it becomes perverse or simply unbearable. Besides, what is there really left to say? Then along comes a book like In the Land of Armadillos by Helen Marilis Shankman. The eight stories in the collection are interwoven, and all but one of them take place in or around the remote Polish town of Vlodowa. Shankman shows us a world in which German officers, Poles, and Jews regularly cross paths. It's a deadly coexistence, but relations are more complex than we've generally imagined. In her book, Shankman also enlists Jewish mysticism and folklore to capture the world of her characters. There's a golem, a reluctant messiah, and vivid accounts of the supernatural. A less able writer couldn't pull this off, but fortunately for us, Shankman is skilled and she pulls this off beautifully. I'm delighted to have Helen Marilis Shankman in the studio with us today to talk about it. Helen, welcome to Box Tablet. Thank you. I wonder if we could start off by having you read a short scene from the story called The Golem of Zukau. It's about a young Jewish woman named Shana. She's a miller, and it takes place in 1939, just after Poland was divided between Russia and Germany. Vlodova, the nearest town, fell to the Germans. Uh, I'd be happy to. When the Germans finally arrived, it lacked a certain drama. A lone soldier putting down the rutted road on a motorcycle, followed by a few camouflage-colored trucks. Soon afterward, a guard was installed at the mill, armed with a helmet and a mauser. Nothing much changed. Farmers came in with grain. Shana made deliveries in town. Apples, rye, and wheat still came in from the Earl of Zamoyski's estate, though now that his hereditary lands had been confiscated, SS Commandant Reinhardt's name was stamped on the bags. Shana treated the Nazis as she would any other client. She saw that the job was done well, weighed accurately, bagged securely. Achim, the soldier the Germans installed at the mill, was a farm boy. After a week of watching the millstones turn, he put down his rifle, rolled up his sleeves, and went to work alongside the hired hands. On a cold Thursday in October, Shana drove the wagon to the nearby town of Lodova. The horse's name was Tony. She flapped the reins over his back to make him go faster, but he had his own idea of how long it should take to get there. It was market day. Farmers had arrived before dawn to set up their boots, and the air was filled with the sounds of women haggling, the smells of dung and cabbage and smoke. Shana waved at the woman who sold eggs, a friend of her mother's, a big woman with high pink cheeks and a generous body. Shana pulled up in front of the bakery. A squat, square-headed man emerged in a cloud of steam, wiping his hands on an apron dusty with flour. A stranger. Where's Handelman, she said. Not here, he said. Let me talk to Fanya, she said, the baker's wife. He apprised her with pale blue eyes. Gone, both of them, he said. Resettled to the east. I'm the baker now. She felt a chill pass over the hairs at the back of her neck. Once he had finished unloading the bags, she chirruped to the horse, shook the reins over his gray shoulders. But the new baker blocked the road in front of the horse, putting his hand on Tony's bridle. The baker's skin was pasty and scarred, his eyes flat, his expression unreadable. A light sheen of perspiration beaded on her forehead, though there was snow on the ground and the horse's breath came out in white gusts. It took her a moment to realize that he wasn't looking at her. 
In the market square, five men performed jumping jacks, presided over by an SS officer and three laughing soldiers. As she watched, one of the men collapsed. With a start, Shana realized that she knew him. Corn, the fishmonger. Still laughing, the officer took out his pistol, aimed carefully. The horse, startled at the gunshot, would have bolted if Shana hadn't been holding the reins so tightly. The baker released Tony's bridle, averting his gaze to the bags of flour on the cobblestones. Same time next week, he said. She heard herself agree. Be careful, he muttered, then stepped away. Her heart pounding, she clucked to the horse. Reassured, he set off down the street that would lead them out of town and away from the blood, tracing a delicate spiderweb pattern in the cracks between the cobblestones. Thank you. In this story, as with the other stories, you muddy our assumptions about how Jews, Poles, and Germans interacted. Here in this story, a German soldier helps with the operations of the Jewish mill, which Shana operates, and a Polish baker, a stranger in fact, is the one who shields Shana from the violence that she sees as she approaches the square. Is this kind of thing wishful thinking, or to your knowledge, this kind of, uh, did these kinds of um, assists and relationships exist? Um, my grandfather was the saddle maker in the town of Ludova, and he had a lot of friends that were Poles. Um, it was a, a farming town, a trade kind of town, and he had as many, you know, non-Jewish Polish friends as he did Jewish friends, and um, he was protected by Germans who he worked for. So I think it's not such a fantasy. I think people people worked together, and people are people. You said in interviews that both of your parents uh, survived the Holocaust. Are they still uh, alive, your folks? Um, I lost my mom in 2009. And my father still um, is fine. And he's he lives in Chicago. And what did they share with you about their experiences in the war? Um, in a way, I guess I was very lucky. My parents both talked about the war. Uh, my father told us all his stories. My mother told us her stories. They had very different styles. Um, my father um, encountered, I would say, much more loss, much more horror, much more um, tragedy. He, I mean, of course, everybody in the war, anybody who was in the war encountered all that loss and tragedy and horror. But my dad lost his mother and he lost baby sisters and he lost uh, an older brother. And um, my mother, on the other hand, she was very direct and reportorial in the way she told me her stories, which I really valued. She had lots of detail and she just reported what she had seen. Were they both from Vlodova? No, my dad was from um, a town. I, I'm still confused. I'm not entirely sure which one he was born in and which one he lived in. He, I think he was from Sokol and lived in Pedbish and uh, ended up surviving the war in a bunker under a house in the city of Drahabich, which is where Bruno Schultz actually lived and wrote about. And Bruno Schultz is clearly a big influence in this book. Yes. How did your mother survive the war? Uh, she was with her family most of the time. Her uh, her father was working for this very powerful German who um, continually protected his workers. And so first she was in the in her house in the town of Vladova, and then she was on this the grounds of this castle in Adampol, Poland. And they left there and were hidden by. Um, friends who were farmers till the end of the war. Uh, about six months before the war was over, her father was worried that they were all going to be killed. He, he thought they were going to be discovered. So he sent her, she was probably 10 at the time, to go live with a farmer lady um, 
in a remote, just the edge of a field. And she, she was there until the end of the war. So your grandfather was a saddle maker. Elsewhere in the book, you've got characters who are Jews, who are jewelers, accountants, ironsmiths. Were these all based on real people? Uh, they're not. My my grandfather, the the he made saddles and harnesses and everything leather that had to do with horses. He upholstered buggies and carriages also. So um, that was what he did. But uh, I had to do a lot of research um, to try to find out more about Vladivostok. And um, I found some piece somewhere that uh, actually listed the jobs that the Jews were doing in Vladivostok. And they were funny things like coppersmiths and... Um, wheelwrights and wagon makers. It was just unexpected. Let's get back to this story, though, for a moment, the golem of Zukov. Okay. At the end of this story, uh, spoiler alert, everybody, <laughs> Shana and her brother survive a massacre thanks to the intervention of a golem. In other stories in the book, there are similar magical interventions, though the outcomes are not always happy, the supernatural notwithstanding. I imagine that that kind of plot twist introducing the supernatural might upset some readers, given that the context, the Holocaust, is such a serious one. How did you grapple with that? You know, I was really worried about that from the very first story, uh, because um, even though for me it felt so emotionally real, um, I, you know, I'm messing with the Holocaust, and the truth is there are so many real stories that are still out there and still haven't been told. And I thought about it, and I realized that uh, for all the years that I heard my mother telling me these stories, the people in them seemed like giants. They weren't like regular people. They um, they performed miracles, um, saving this person or saving that person or pulling that person out of a line, um, getting there in the nick of time and saving, you know, 250 people. And every time someone survived, it was a miracle. And they used words like that. It was a miracle. So it was not really a huge leap of imagination to go from hearing these stories as almost mythic, their stories of survival, to adding elements of um, myth and folklore and and fantasy. Were you brought up with the, that kind of mythology and folklore? Um, uh, yes and no. I'm religious, and I grew up learning a certain amount of midrash and... Those stories are full of magic. You know, there's always a flying rabbi or uh, demons. Um, so I guess so. It was very much part of my daily studies. A lot of the characters in the stories uh, show up again and again, and our sense of them changes as we hear about them from different perspectives. Uh, one of the most troubling of these characters is Willie Reinhardt, whose title, as he's fond of repeating, is Reich Commissioner for the Collection and Distribution of Agricultural Products. He's the protagonist of the longest story in the collection, which is called A Decent Man. Tell us a little bit about Willie Reinhardt and what drew you to make him one of your main characters. When I first conceived of him, I thought of him as a failed Schindler. Uh, my mother was on the grounds of this estate, and her family was saved again and again by um, a German whose last name was Zellinger. And he really, it's, it, it really seemed like he was trying to save and protect his Jews. And there were, there's a lot of my family's story in that story, in A Decent Man. And, um, you know, my mother was indeed walked into the forest with everybody else at Adampol, and um, this 
Zellinger showed up at the last minute and told the officer, you know, come back to the castle. You know, you can't do this. Uh, Come back to the castle. You'll have something to eat. You'll have something to drink. And, you know, I'll make some phone calls. So um, I heard his name so often growing up that it was like he was another lotsman. He was one of my, you know, just one of the family friends. But at the same time, I... Uh, on doing a little bit of research about him, there were dark elements in his story. Uh, My uncle Philip actually saw him shoot somebody. And even though he was certainly saving his Jews and he was certainly saving his workers, and more than that, I think he liked them. Those were his friends. You know, he was stuck in the forest with these people. But at the same time, there were some dark stories about him as well. Uh, do you think that this kind of character, Reinhardt, and uh, earlier there's Max in the first story, uh, who's also a German who's sort of – he's rather high up and he sort of uh, has a little bit of delusions of grandeur it seems, but also not just delusions of grandeur, sort of delusions that he's a little bit better. His moral fiber is a little bit uh, of higher quality somehow. He has a – uh, beneficent streak in a way. Uh, and it's hard for me to really believe that these, that there would be people who really liked the Jewish labor and thought of him as his friend. That There seems to be this air of sort of possession, my Jew, or, you know, a kind of condescension. I, I have the power to save you or I have the power to destroy you. And so there's something kind of uh, corrupt in that relationship. But what I'm getting from you in talking to you actually is uh, a different feeling that actually there could be a purity in this kind of relationship between the German, uh, the Nazi person in charge and the Jewish laborer. So Max, Max in the first story in the land of armadillos, Max is a killer. Max is a cold hearted killer, but he doesn't hate Jews. He just is doing his job. And, you know, it's a lousy job, but it's his job and he's good at it. And he meets this guy and uh, he just likes him so much, this painter, right? There's something wonderful about him. And he opens him up to a world he's never, uh, he's never been exposed to. So he becomes the family he doesn't have. He's someone to talk to who's not connected with any of the Germans. He has to, you know, really watch himself with the other Germans. Um, but at the same time, there's no question that Max is a killer. Um, he just, he forms a relationship with the people in his house, um, which I think is... I think that's kind of natural. I think people did do that. Um, and Reinhardt, who's at the other end of the story, Reinhardt definitely um, looks down on the Germans. You know, he likes the Poles better. He, li- he's, he likes his Jews. He likes his life. He definitely holds himself up a little bit and thinks of himself, comes to think of himself as the savior of the Jews. Was it difficult for you to write these stories, to step into the lives of these characters? Yeah, it was. It was really emotional, especially the – it's very hard to step into the shoes of the German characters. Um, And I had to do a lot of very unpleasant reading to learn about them and learn about what kind of – what things they did during the war. It was – really made me sick, and I have little kids. So it was very hard to um, be in these guys' head all day and see the things they saw and experience the things they'd experienced – and then at the end of the day, I had to pull out and go be mommy and go do second grade homework. How did you make that transition? I don't know. <laughs> I have great powers of denial, I guess. <laughs> I have great powers of compartmentalization. Was this a project you had been thinking about doing for some time or did it just hit you all of a sudden? Not at all. I had written a, another book and the middle part of the other book um, 
also has elements of the paranormal and also has elements of my mother's stories. So as I was researching that, I became more and more fascinated by the history of my mother's area and the people that were there. So um, after I finished it, I was eager to keep writing. So um, And the stories really just came one after another. It, uh, after the second or third story, it occurred to me that these were a series and um, that I wanted some of the same people to be in each of the stories. You know, I came up, my, my grandfather was such an interesting character and had known so many different kinds of people that I thought he would, that would work well. And it just uh, fell together. Some reviewers have compared your writing to Shalom Aleichem and to Nathan Englander, among others. I wonder, who do you see as your strongest literary influences? Um, I love Nathan Englander's stories. And reading um, For the Relief of Unbearable Urges was a tremendous eye-opener for me. Um, The idea that you could write about Jewish subjects, the stuff of my life, in such a detached way was wonderful. Um, Stephen King was also a tremendous influence um, because of the way he would write about everyday life with, you know, name brand candy bars and name brand canned goods. And then he'd solely introduce the psychological horror and the actual horror. Um, Flannery O'Connor was a tremendous influence on me. The first time I ever read any of her stories, I think the first one was actually um, A Good Man is Hard to Find. I, I literally threw it across the room. It was um, so cynical, and its view of people was just so dark. But uh, then I realized that I really, really, really liked that, and there was um, there was uh, a lot to learn from in there. Uh, and I'm also Graham Greene was a tremendous influence, also, and also John Le Carre. Wow, those are such diverse influences. Who are you drawn to these days? Oh gosh, um, I I read um, these days. I find myself reading a lot of science fiction, actually. Um, uh, I like Philip K. Dick a lot. Um, it's the same thing, which is the near future, and you know, there's elements of science fiction, but it's really about it's really about lonely people, um, marriages, um, and who we are, and what we do to each other, the terrible things we do to each other, and and hope. And there's certainly hope too, but I like science fiction. Helen Marylith Shankman, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Helen Marilith Shankman's new collection of stories is called In the Land of Armadillos. It's out this week from Scribner. Go get yourself a copy. We love hearing from you, both longtime listeners and those of you who are just discovering us. Send us a line. Let us know what you think, what you'd like to hear more of, and all that good stuff. We are at podcast at tabletmag.com. And, of course, if you don't already subscribe to Vox Tablet, please go and do it. You can subscribe on iTunes or on the podcast browser of your choice. That way you'll be sure to never miss an episode. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. 